Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. All right, what's up, guys? Thank you for being here this morning. As Ashley just said, this is our actually our last week in the Fulfillment Series for a while now, so be prepared. Soak it up next week. Advent brunches start, which is truly like the greatest time on the planet uh, that we have here. Actually, it's the greatest time throughout the year is what I mean to say uh, here at Dwell. Uh, we have Advent. We have brunch right in the middle of our worship gathering. Like it's part of worship. It's just as important as singing that Sunday is eating a pancake. And so you have absolutely got to be here. Don't listen to that Christmas music yet. I know it's tempting. Don't hang up your things. Don't drink that peppermint latte. Like, just wait. You've only got one more week. You've almost made it, all right? And then it'll be that much sweeter, the way God intended, right? All right. Anyway, today uh, we are talking about Jesus' idea of greatness and what that actually looks like. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this concept of the goat, right? Greatest of all time. That sounded like your grandfather read something on TikTok, right? Like that intro was just like, you guys ever heard about this thing called the goat? I just discovered it last week. And now, anyway, uh, I am going to lean into that a little bit. I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Basically, for those of you who don't know, if there are people out there, uh, there's this conversation going around about someone being the greatest athlete of all time. It's usually athletes. Like I feel like Shaquille O'Neal has now spent half of his post- Uh, NBA career discussing Michael Jordan versus LeBron, right? Like that is just anytime somebody pops up on the street and they have, Jack, I got one question for you. That's going to be it, right? He must be so tired of it. Um, Basically, people will debate like this guy, not this guy. I mean, on my corners of the internet, you should see like the Messi versus Ronaldo debate. It's pretty gross. Like it gets much worse than the the LeBron versus Michael kind of debate if you haven't actually seen it. I don't really get into that kind of stuff. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, and I, I absolutely hate sports commentary. I'm like, all right, it's a game, people. So now you're going to devote your life to talking about a game? Like, it's a little silly as a diversion. Like, we can all admit that. Sports are a little goofy, you know, but we enjoy them. Now we're going to, like, talk about them for hours? That's crazy. So I invented my own uh, non-sports goat list. Are you ready for this? You may disagree with them, and that's fine. We can debate that. Um, I would say the goat coffee shop in Denver is Huckleberry, all locations. Come at me. I would say the goat meal deal in Denver is actually Taco Tuesday at Los Maisones. If you know, you know. All right, $6. Where else can you get out of any restaurant in Denver for $6? That's crazy. Um, I would say that the goat villain in a book or a movie, or a book and a movie even, is the Witch King of Angmar from The Lord of the Rings, greatest villain of all time of all literature. Uh, Goat Colorado Mountain Town is Leadville. Sorry, I'm not fancy enough for, you know, you Aspen people or whatever. I can't really even afford Breckenridge. So Leadville is really the spot, right? Goat Harry Potter movie is clearly Prisoner of Azkaban by a long shot. And I can discuss this later if you'd like. Um, Last but not least, I feel like we should talk about the goat animal, which is definitely not a goat. I'm sorry for you goat people there. Kind of stinks for the goat to have its name attached to this when no one in their right mind has ever been like, you know the best animal is goats, right? They're kind of mean, they smell, uh, whatever. So the goat animal, and mind you, I'm not saying my personal favorite. I'm not a child here. I don't have a favorite animal. We're talking the best animal that exists is actually the polar bear. 
All right? Uh, it's amazing, by the way, uh, that we're even, like, talking about this. Like, it's crazy to me that this has become, like, a common thing in our society, and people will even debate it. All of you, like, anti-conflict people are like, man, this whole discussion makes me uncomfortable because I don't believe that the polar bear is the best animal, but he just said it, and I don't want to have to fight him. This is weird. Uh, but there's a lot of you that are like, man, I have got something to tell Josh afterwards. Los Mesones is awful, right? Like, it sort of, like, inspires that kind of conversation competition in us. And I think that's actually what we're dealing with today. Today we are actually talking about what it means to be the greatest. And I know it'll be tempting in this sermon, all right? I'm just going to lay this out here ahead of time. It's going to be tempting in this sermon to immediately think that I'm talking about someone else, right? Like this is one of those classic sermons where you're going to walk out of here and be like, man, I need to send my brother-in-law that sermon because he thinks he's the best and he's not, right? The reality is that there's some level at which we all think of ourselves as the greatest. Now, you not, may not be like, you know, trying to compete with like Winston Churchill or Tom Brady or something like that, but there's some small part of you that thinks you're the best, right? I mean, thinks you're like really, really good at something. And maybe you even think to yourself like, okay, uh, I would be the greatest and recognized as the greatest if only it weren't for these circumstances. Or like, man, if people could truly actually know who I am, they would uh, pay more attention to me because I am so, so great at this particular thing. I feel like it's easy to notice this inner you that's speaking up when, uh, when we're talking about the greatest, usually when you get offended. Right? Like, what actually offends you? Isn't it that inner part of you that's like, no, 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 no. Like, I deserve more honor than that. I deserve more recognition than that. I am better than that. I shouldn't have to do this thing. I shouldn't have to put up with this treatment. I'm always thinking more about others than other people are. I'm the most educated, most informed person on this particular issue. I have the most skills at this thing. And you see that inner person really pops up and you notice it in the way that you tend to defend yourself, even if it's only in your own head. You say, hey, I am more important than that. I am better than that. You see, there's a part of each and every one of us that thinks that we deserve the seat of honor thinks that we deserve the best seat, that thinks at some level that we are the greatest. Today, Jesus is going to show us an upside-down model of greatness that is literally directly opposite to the model of greatness that the world is trying to push towards us. So, Jesus says he predicts his death one more time, uh, and uh, immediately after that, one of his disciples' moms come up to him, and they say, oh, Jesus, since you're going to heaven, this is how moms talk, you guys know. Uh, I'm sorry, my mom is here and it's her birthday. I probably shouldn't be making this joke. I planned this a long time ago. Uh, this is terrible, but you guys know how moms are, right? Uh, they go, Jesus, since you're going to heaven anyway, would you mind if my two boys went up there with you and saved them the good seats, right? Like that's basically what she's asking. It's kind of a weird kind of request that only a mom would do. I also think it's interesting to note, uh, you may have heard this passage before if you've been in church before, but this never really caught my eye until this reading. The mom goes up there and is like, hey, Jesus, can you take care of my boys in heaven? And then Jesus turns and looks and responds to the boys, right? Like he knows who really put uh, the mom up to this. He's like, James and John are sitting over here and they're like, we know if we go and ask Jesus, he's going to think we're prideful and arrogant. We'll send our mom to do it, right? Nobody can say no to mom, right? So uh, she marches up there and this is where the rubber meets the road very, very quickly because you realize that this mom is way off. We'll pick up the story in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, this cup that Jesus is talking about is actually the cup of suffering that he would drink. He even refers to it that way in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was like a a common phrase for people to use back in the day. He's saying, like, this cup that you're going to drink is going to be pain. It's going to be sorrow. It's going to be difficulty. And Jesus says, you don't get it. If you want to sit near me, this is what you're going to have to go through. Which already should give us a clue that Jesus' model of greatness is not the same as ours. He then foretells, when they say, yeah, sure, we'll sign up for that, he foretells the suffering that they would both endure. Church tradition tells us that uh, John uh, was actually the one who wrote to the book of Revelation, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. We don't know how exactly he died, uh, but he was exiled for his faith and suffering out of uh, drinking this sort of similar cup to Jesus. We know in actually Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says that James was put to death by the sword by Herod. He drank a very similar cup to what Jesus would endure as he was suffering for Jesus. It's astonishing here. Both brothers jump at the chance. They say, yes, Jesus, we will drink that cup. The story goes on to tell us that this mom was not the only one who didn't understand Jesus' model of greatness. The rest of the disciples did not either. Picks up in verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. That makes sense, right? You get that. They're like, hey, uh, you know, there's only two seats on either side of you in heaven, Jesus. And there's 12 of us here. They're all like running the numbers, you know. So they're indignant. Verse 25, but Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles uh, lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, this is the heart of Jesus' upside-down model of greatness. And it's completely opposite of ours. He's saying the first shall be last, the servant will be greatest among you. In our world, the greatest rise to the top, and then we give them more power and authority, right? The impressive people have power and authority. Uh, You can uh, find this out really quick, how crazy it is that we give people with skills and impressive natures and stuff like that. Like, we give them more and more and more authority in our lives to yield it over us. You find this out when you watch TV and you see, like, commercials for, like, cryptocurrencies or whatever. Like, why uh, would a basketball player need to tell me about this new change in economic function of the world? world, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. We trust celebrities to tell us how to vote, you know? Like, it's just kind of, like, crazy. We say someone is great, and thus they need more influence, they need more power, they need more authority in our lives, and then as they climb that ladder of greatness, as they become more known, as they become more recognized to be great, they start sort of saying, well, I don't need to do things that are beneath me anymore, I mean, how many struggles would we have in this world, or how many less struggles in this world would we have if, like, people who were deemed great in our world uh, actually were humble and willing to, like, serve other people? How much better would our world be if people didn't take power and authority and try and take it as far as they possibly could? Instead, our society says, whatever you deem great, we're going to pick the person that we think has the highest concentration of that skill, then we're going to raise them up and give them all kinds of actual and implied authority over our lives. 
And ironically enough, we've even taken it a step further. If I can, you know, put my grumpy old grandpa hat on one more time. In our, like, semi-virtual world that we live in, in our, like, celebrity-obsessed culture, you don't even really have to be great as long as you can pretend really well that you are great. Right? Like, as long as you can sort of convince enough people that you are great, then this snowball starts happening. It's crazy. Somehow, arrogance and pride have become necessary components to success in America, or so it seems. Not so in Jesus' kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, servants and slaves rise to the top. You don't get a place in Jesus' kingdom by proving how great you are. You get a place in Jesus' kingdom by proving how much of a servant you are. Then he even reminds them in this that he's going to do that to the highest degree possible. Like, he's actually going to model this for them. He is actually the only person on the face of the planet that has ever lived that has full authority to say, I am great. He could look at any other human being that he, as part of the Trinity, the Godhead, actually created. He could look at them and say, hey, I'm better than you, and it would actually be true. And yet he lets them know that he is going to drink this cup of suffering. He is going to die on the cross. He is going to give his life as a ransom for many. So just as a recap, greatness to the world looks like pride and power and authority and your skills and your gifts. Greatness to Jesus is the one who sacrifices most for others. Greatness to Jesus is the one who sacrifices most for others. The highest and greatest example was Jesus himself. He took on all of the sins, all of the pain, all of the sorrow of lesser human beings, and he actually died for that, for them, on the cross. So, how do we take what Jesus is saying here and actually apply it to our own lives? How do we uh, sort of like reformat our minds towards this system of greatness that Jesus is describing here, not the one that we default to with the rest of the world? I have three ideas for, uh, for you from this passage. Uh, the first one is servant leadership. I believe that to put yourself in a position of servitude towards someone else is like a distinctly un-American idea. Never actually watched the show, much to my wife's chagrin, but I get the idea on Downton Abbey that you want to be upstairs, not downstairs, right? That, like, that is bad news if that is your life. And there's something about us being, like, you know, I think a little bit of it's, like, anti-British sentiment, right? Like, we don't sort of like that whole structure and everything like that. But I think also uh, the reason why we're so anti-serving is because we had, like, the worst example of serving ever in American slavery, Right. And so now, uh, because that was evil and that was heinous, uh, because we took like one whole race of people and treated them as if they were less than human so that they could serve us because of that. Now we have thrown out the idea of serving entirely as something that you only have to do when someone else is subjugating you or like flexing your authority or their authority over you. But there is some honor and dignity in serving. Right. Like, it should be a beautiful and revered position and profession, even. 
where would Batman be without Alfred, right? Think about that for a minute, right? There's a beautiful example of serving. In the John Steinbeck book, East of Eden, that maybe you were forced to read in high school, there's this character named Lee, and Lee basically ties the entire family together. It's the story about this family moving west. It's kind of an Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel kind of allegory, right? And Lee is the only like godly character in the entire book, and he is the family's servant. Jesus actually has some different thoughts on servanthood than we do. Let me read this again. In verse 26, it says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And before we go any further, and I've talked about this before, it may be helpful to understand that biblical slavery is not American slavery. The setup was different. They had a wholly, totally different economic system. And there was apparently an economic and social situation that worked out to where you would sell yourself into slavery if need be. Now, I'm not trying to defend any sort of biblical slavery or that we should, I definitely don't think we should institute that again. Uh, please do not, uh, you know, at me or anything like that. But basically, uh, in this world, most of the time you would work and you would get paid a day's wage. And if you got into a place where you got into debt, you got behind on your money, there was basically no way that you could actually get ahead. And so sometimes it was the economic system, the right choice for you to sell yourself into slavery. Because then instead of getting your day's wage that you would then come home and pay out to pay for your day's food and your day's housing, you would actually just have all of that provided by one person. People even willingly decided that slavery was the best option for them. And the reason why I bring all that up is not to just give you some sort of weird you know, economic lesson that I probably don't even know enough to be talking about, but for two reasons. The first one is that when you hear slave, you probably think American slavery, which has almost no redeeming qualities, right? I can't really even think of one. I only said almost just to hedge my bets just a little bit, right? I don't think there was anything good that came out of that. But Jesus here, when he uses the term slave, he was talking about something similar, but a little bit different. Now, it still would have been a sign of lack of power. So I don't want to take the sting out of it very much, but I do want to just recognize that Jesus is saying here something that is like really, really heavy. If you want to be first, the first among you must actually be your slave. Jesus says that if you want to be first, if you want to be great, if you want to be a leader like he is, that you should do that for the people that you serve, for the people that you lead. I want you to think about that because all of us in this room lead people by some degree. Now, you may not, you know, be in charge of your department. Uh, you may not have, you know, 60 kids that you're taking care of. Uh, you may not feel like you have any sort of leadership whatsoever. I would argue that even like being a part of a group of people, like being in relationship with others gives you some sort of small form of leadership over their lives. So the question that you need to ask and the question that I need to ask is, do you serve the people that you lead? Now, that doesn't mean that you have to do everything that they tell you to do or that you should be in an abusive relationship. I want to be very clear on this. The sort of, like, uh, levels here are kind of confusing, right? And it's really, this is tricky. We talked about this a long time. We actually have a sermon meeting every week where we walk through the text. The tricky thing is there are two types of people in this room. There are people who are like, man, 
I don't really serve anybody. Uh, I don't want to have to like sacrifice. That's going to be tough for me. I don't want to get into this. I don't want to do that. And then there are people who are like basically being a doormat for others and letting them walk all over them for their entire lives, right? So I don't want to condone any sense of abuse or harm. There is a level at which you should set some healthy boundaries. Like I, I want you to like hear that. And uh, like I said, the tricky thing is I'm talking to both of you here in this room. The best part is, and I can speak from personal experience, the most selfish of us in this room are like, yeah, I'm definitely one of those serving too much people, right? So like, this is a tricky thing, and I'm going to lean really hard because the selfish ones in the room are the ones like me who are like, I don't need to hear this. You know, I probably need to set some better boundaries and stop serving so much, right? <laughs> Am I right? And sadly, the inverse is true as well. Those of you who are in relationships, at jobs, whatever it is, where you have someone who is actually taking regular advantage of you are probably going to walk away and think, man, I need to serve even more. It's a tricky thing here. What's beautiful about this and what Jesus is promoting here is that it is a willing offering of yourself for someone else. It's not someone else taking this from you. It's you actually giving it to them, which is infinitely more beautiful. Someone taking advantage of you is heinous and dark and confusing and awful. You actually offering yourself to someone else is beautiful and life-giving and Christ-like. And that's what servant leadership really looks like. Jesus modeled it perfectly. Now, he would often uh, lead them, right? He would tell them what to do. He would correct them. He would chastise them. He even, like, set boundaries for them. And he would regularly exercise his authority. But in the midst of all of that, he was also sacrificing greatly for them. He washed their feet. He patiently endured their questions. How do you even do that if you're Jesus? Like, can you imagine having the right answer to every question and having to still deal with other people and having to take on their questions? And they're like, no, 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 Jesus, hold on. That's not right what you just said. Like, can you imagine being Jesus? That frustrates me when people say that to me, and I'm not even right most of the time. Can you imagine being Jesus and being righteously, rightfully right and having people question your thoughts on stuff? He loved them. He was patient with them. He's kind and giving of himself for them. And then he says, if anyone would be great among you, they must be your servant first. So what does it look like in your life? It means your employees that you manage must first know that you love them. It means that you show them that by sacrificing for them. The world would tell you not to give them an inch because they'll take a mile. The world would tell you that you have to project strength and show how impressive you are to everyone else around you. And Jesus says you should sacrifice for them. It means that your children ought to see you sacrifice for them as you lead them. If you're a parent in this room, it means that your children ought to see the way that you have to model for them servant leadership even in your household. It also means that even those you are trying to lead to Jesus ought to know first that you would love them and that you would do anything for them, that you might actually be their servant in order to lead them to Christ, that you would do anything you could to help them as they are hearing the gospel from you. Now, this idea of being a servant leader is impossible without one very Jesus-like posture that we talk about a lot here at Dwell Church, and that is what, that we must be humble. In order to serve, you must be humble. We talk about it all the time because I need to hear it all of the freaking time. Can I tell you that like a month ago, I was sitting in here in this very room and I was mopping the floor and I started thinking to myself, Josh, you have a master's degree and you've been doing this for five years. 
probably seven years since we were like started planning for Dwell Church. You're an impressive guy. You're really, really good. And while you're really good at mopping, surely there's someone else that should be doing this who is lesser and lower than you, right? These are the thoughts that start creeping in my head. If you've never mopped a floor this big, uh, that's a lot of time for thinking, all right? You spend some time and you really, really start questioning things. And what I'm telling you here is not something at all that I am proud of. In fact, it is to my shame that that is exactly what lack of humility looks like, right? That is the opposite of servant leadership. That is pride at its very heart. In order to be an active participant in this kingdom of God, in order to be the greatest by Jesus' standards, we must be humble. Listen to this sobering message from Jesus, verse 11. Uh, or sorry, Luke 14, 7 through 11. Actually, I'm just going to read verse 11. Sorry, I'm hung up there. You guys don't care. Anyway, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me read it again. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know about the circles that you run in. I'm hanging out with a bunch of other pastors, and it's astounding that sometimes we like know and like actually live out the Bible the least. There are some circles that I roll in where I've seen this firsthand. Many pastors have drank the Kool-Aid of self-exaltation, self-promotion. And I have actually seen this pattern work out. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. It leads to a humbling. And believe me, just from a pragmatic standpoint, it is better to humble yourself than to have someone else or some situation do it for you. In order to be great in Jesus' kingdom, you cannot think that you are better than anyone else. This whole the last shall be first thing actually starts in your heart and in your mind. You've probably been this person before, I know I have, where you're out there serving and you're actually doing something that is humbling and you're like thinking to yourself like, wow, look at me, look how great I am, you know, like, man, I'm actually really great because look at all this serving that I'm doing. That's where humility comes in. Because as is very often the case with Jesus, he's after what's in here, not just what you do. He's after your heart and your mind. Humility means not that you're thinking less of yourself, uh, but you're thinking of yourself less. Right, so as you're doing these things, you're not thinking of like, who's seeing me do these great things? Who's seeing me be so servant-hearted? Who's recognizing what I'm doing here? But you're actually just thinking about the people that you are serving, the people uh, that you are sacrificing for. Which leads us to our last point. Give your life. In humility, you are offering your life to someone else. You really only start thinking about giving and keeping your life when you're in like a boring meeting, right? You're like sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, am I really giving my life to this? Like, is this my life right now? Have you ever had that moment, you know? Like, it's that weird moment, and don't pretend like you've never done this, where you're like sitting and you're like, I wonder what they would do if I jumped out that window right now. Like, if I just jumped right through that window, like, how would everyone else in this room respond? Maybe you're thinking that right now, and I'm sorry for that, uh, but that's when you start thinking about, man, this is my life. Like, this is what I am doing. You're stuck on hold for four hours, and you're like, man, I only get 
spend a few sets of these four hours throughout my whole life. Like, think about it. You're going to spend a few days of your life sitting at stop signs. That is what it means to, or stoplights. That is what it means to, like, give your life. Now, when we think about that, that very often leads us, I think, towards, like, a sense of, like, hedonism, right? Like, a kind of, like, I'm just going to do what makes me happy all the time. We say we don't want to waste our lives. We should spend them in ways that suit us, right? Like, we should do things that make us happy all the time. This is kind of like this idea of like, this is my life and it's finite. I only get one of them. YOLO, if people say that anymore. What happened to that, by the way? Can we just like say, a, you know, like pour one out for YOLO? I liked those days, right? Anyway, uh, basically it's an idea that you can't waste a second because every single second of your life is yours and it's precious and you need it and you got to have it. Jesus, is, Jesus challenges us. In Jesus' kingdom, lives are eternal, and they are given as gifts. Lives are eternal and are given as gifts. Think about that for a second. I think what Jesus is pointing us towards here is that to offer some of your life, to give some of your life for someone else is actually a holy and a beautiful thing. Now, you may not be asked to do it like Jesus did, right? Like actually exchanging your life for another. In fact, you can't do the work that Jesus did. Now, you may be called to some sort of sense of mar martyrdom or something like that. I don't know what your future holds. But I think more often for us as we're thinking about, like, you know, I'm giving my life to this, we ought to be changing that to think, what can I be giving my life to? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, he's given you more life than you could ever use. He's actually given you eternal life with him. And no amount of suffering that you could possibly experience here on earth could ever be more than the amount of joy and life you'll experience with him in heaven. I believe then to give some of your life is a beautiful thing. To offer an hour to someone is a holy thing. To help someone move is actually a sacred thing. To hear someone's cries is a beautiful thing. I would even argue, to a degree, let someone even take advantage of you can be a beautiful thing because I'll tell you, at least for me, that's what it feels like to help someone sometimes, you know? Like I wonder as I look at my own life, I wonder how many times like quote unquote healthy boundaries that I've set have kept me from actually loving my neighbor. Is that what Jesus would want? I don't think so. And man, you could just do a simple and nice thing and I bet if you walked up and down the streets of Denver and talked to 10 people, you'd find at least one that would say, no, 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 you need better boundaries than that, man. You don't need to give away that cup of water. You gotta think about you. Surely you've been in that situation before, right? It's gonna hurt. It's painful means people are just sort of like pummeling on you. You're just opening yourself up to what we would call abuse and harm and pain. But very often, that's what it looks like to serve someone. Now, I'm not recommending that you abandon boundaries or burn yourself out, but to give some, your life for someone else means taking a little bit of their suffering that they are carrying and transferring it onto yourself. It is not meant to feel good. <clears throat> but to offer your life to take on someone else's suffering is one of the most Jesus-like things that you can do. 
He said this in one of his final speeches to his disciples in John chapter 15, 12 through 13. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends my call to you is to do that for someone else do it this week lay down a part of your life for someone else find someone who is suffering and believe me they're not hard to find find someone who is suffering and take some of that suffering on yourself that could look a lot of different ways you could actually try and find people that are like suffering the most in our city. Find someone who's like unhoused, someone who's living in poverty, someone who is just struggling to get by every single day. Now that may be what you need to do this week. And there's gonna be plenty of opportunities with Thanksgiving coming up. Some of us actually like already have the person in our life. And we've said to ourselves, man, I am not going to go grab coffee with them. They are just going to complain. They are just going to, like, bring me down. That is a negative person. That person is probably negative because they are going through a lot. They are suffering. And you have the opportunity to take some of that that they're carrying and just place it on your own back. In fact, if you have Jesus' love in you, that means that you can carry a little more suffering. If you have the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, that means you're able to bear a little bit more than you might think. Share that load. I am prayerful and hopeful that the Holy Spirit is speaking to each and every one of us in this room as to how we might bear some of that suffering this week from someone else. Finally, if you feel like, as we were talking, man, I don't know that I can take on anyone else's suffering because I am suffering so much right now. The most beautiful thing in this passage is actually Jesus predicting his death on the cross because it means that he is going to take on all of that suffering on himself. He does not want you to carry it yourself. He does not want you to bear it all alone. He does not want you to have to keep on carrying that heavy load. He actually takes it all and he takes it to the cross and then he dies and takes it to death with him. So much suffering in the world comes back from the fact, or comes from the fact that we are sinful human beings, which means we very often choose our own way over God's. We are sinful, we are selfish, we are greedy, we want more than we deserve, we want to take it from others, we want to cause pain to ourselves and to others. And the only remedy for that, the only solution for that problem in our life, there's no, not amount, no amount of self-help that could get you out of that. There's no sort of like positive vibes that could break that cycle. The only solution is the death on the cross that Jesus died for you and for me. He actually died for that suffering that you're experiencing right now. And he died for you because he loves you. This is the gift and this is the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. 
All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.